0: Well, over the past uh, eight weeks, it's been eight weeks now. Whoops, back one, Jeff. Okay. We've been looking at Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Now, the Thessalon- Thessalonian church was a relatively young church at this time. And Paul had established this church on his journey, one of his early missionary journeys through what was called Macedonia then, which is now. Uh, modern-day Greece, and Thessalonica is actually in the northern part of modern-day Greece. Paul travelled through here, around about AD 50, and he is writing from a place called Corinth in the southern part of Greece, and he he wanted to encourage the Thessalonian believers. He wanted to say to them, "'Guys, stay firmly grounded in the truth of the gospel.'" Paul had taught them the gospel truths and when he and his travelling companions had visited them and Paul and his companions had modelled the gospel, modelled the Christian life to them at this time and his reason for writing now was because they were experiencing persecution and that persecution, that antagonism from other people in the, in the city was growing and they were getting a bit shaky in their faith but there were also concerns, growing concerns amongst the Christian believers there. Uh, and the main concern was re- con- main concern concerned, the uh, return of Jesus. You remember how Jesus when he left when he was rose? He said he would come again soon. And these guys, less than 20 years after Jesus had died and rose again we're still waiting for Jesus to return they expected it imminently which is something that probably we should do as well because we don't know when Jesus is going to come back but the thing is he might even come back today and the question is are we all ready so as we come to this last part of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians he asks them to pray for him now I can press that thing He wanted prayer for himself and his travelling companions as they continued to spread the good news of salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so he firstly asked them that they pray that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. Now, when we come across that word spread rapidly, in the Greek it's it's literally translated as runs. Let the message run. Run freely. It's an unusual phrase, but Paul loves to use vivid figures of speech. In his first letter, he likened the proclamation of the gospel to a trumpet blast or peal of thunder which rang out from Thessalonica. And he now personifies the word, the gospel, as being like a runner competing in the Olympic Games. It's imagery that also occurs in the Old Testament in Psalm 147 verse 15 where it mentions that God's word runs swiftly. And so the Thessalonians are asked to pray that the gospel may run well, that it may run fast, that it may spread, and that it may touch hearts wherever it goes. And wherever it lands that it may receive an honoured reception. But the point here is that God's word is alive and we must must allow that word to be not only proclaimed but let it run, let it touch people's hearts. You see, God's servants may be constrained but God's word cannot be bound, it cannot be tied down. The word, the gospel had come running into Thessalonica and had been honoured by the reception it was given and now Paul asks, the Thessalonians to pray that that word of God may run further that it may run quickly throughout the Roman Empire and he prayed that it would be received or honoured or glorified by other people as it had been by the Thessalonian believers he prays that the word of God would be free to accomplish God's purposes in the world but Paul's second prayer was that he and his companions may be delivered from wicked and evil people Just as the Holy Spirit uses dedicated people to share the word, there is a spiritual reality. It's called Satan. It's called demons. And Satan uses wicked and evil people to oppose the word, to oppose the gospel. So Paul acknowledges that there are forces in this world that seriously do not want the gospel message shared. And there are people who will do almost anything to stop Christians from sharing the good news. But Paul had confidence that his readers would not yield to Satan, but instead that they would permit the faithful Lord to strengthen them and protect them from the evil one. You know, the fact is, we will struggle if we rely on our own strength, our own talents, our own abilities. We cannot have confidence in ourselves. But we do and can and will have confidence in God, our Heavenly Father, not only for ourselves, but for others as well. That's where our confidence, that's where our strength, that's where our power comes from. Not from within here, here, but from God. But then Paul turns to address a problem that had arisen within the church community. In his first letter, Paul warns those people who are idle and disruptive to work with their hands. These people were not gainfully employed and they were causing trouble and unrest. They gossiped amongst the church community. We're talking believers here. But since Paul's first letter, apparently these guys, these troublemakers, had not repented. And so Paul once more addresses the situation of people who were basically sponging off the charity and generosity of other Christian believers. And let me say, these were people, these were not people who could not work, but people who would not work. And it seems this situation has arisen because some people in the church had misinterpreted or misunderstood Paul's teachings about the return of Jesus. And so, hey, Jesus is coming maybe next weekend. What's the point of working this week? Yeah? And this is what they were thinking. There's no point in working anymore. Jesus is about to come. So let's just put our feet up. But you can't do that for very long, can you? But in the meantime, as time went on, these people had given up their jobs and expected other people in the church who were still working to support them. And so they did virtually nothing but cause trouble by gossiping and perhaps even spreading the false teaching that Paul refers to elsewhere. For us, we must understand that misinterpretations and misapplications of the truths of God's word can cause us endless trouble. History history records the foolishness of people who set dates, who sold their possessions and sat on mountaintops. And there was even an instance in in Sydney in I think it was the 1920s. People gathered um, opposite Sydney heads expecting Jesus to come walking through on on the water through Sydney heads. They were a little bit disappointed, let me tell you. But let me be clear about this very important point. Any teaching that encourages us to disobey a God-given teaching, a teaching that's in the Bible, is not from God. Any teaching that encourages us to disobey something that's written in the Word of God, in the Bible, is definitely not from God. And any teaching that you have doubts about, check it back with Scripture. Scripture. We have a responsibility to do that. So since we're talking about work, what does the Bible teach about work or manual labour? For one thing, it was part of God's intention for people to, before sin entered the world, God gave Adam the job of looking after the Garden of Eden as we, read, as we heard read to us in Genesis 2. God made people to work. But sin entered in, Genesis 3, and it turned labour or work into almost hopeless toil. But we must never think that the necessity of work is the result of sin. We were created to work. And people, we need to work for fulfilment. For our own identity and personhood. God created us to work. Have you noticed that God called people who were busy at work in the Bible? You know, Moses. When God called Moses, what was he doing? He was caring for sheep. He was a shepherd at that time. And moving a bit forward to Joshua. Now, Joshua was Moses' servant, he worked for Moses. He was Moses' assistant. And he did that before he succeeded Moses. Gideon. You remember what Gideon was doing when God called him and the judges? Gideon was threshing the wheat. He was a farmer. And David. What was he doing before God tapped him on the shoulder? You can answer that question. You should know it. He was a shepherd, that's right, who was tending his father's sheep. And then we come to Jesus. As Jesus calls his disciples, his first four disciples were fishermen. They were working at being fishermen. They were at their nets when Jesus called them and they left everything to follow him. And even Jesus had a job. Carpenter, excellent. Oh, you're on a roll here. <laughs> yeah. Jesus was a carpenter. He worked at a profession, probably taught by his father, Joseph. He worked. He set that example. He was nearly 30 years old before he actually um, came out to, to preach, to proclaim that the kingdom of God was near. And finally, Paul. The Apostle Paul. Do you remember what he did for a living? He was a tent maker. Yeah, he was a tent maker. And when he was in any place for a long time, he worked at his trade of tent making. Now the Jews, at this time, honoured honest labour and work. And the Jews required all their rabbis to have a trade. But in this time of Paul, we have the Greeks. And the Greeks despised manual labour. They left work, manual labour, to their slaves. That was the society they lived in. Now, this Greek influence, plus their wrong ideas about the doctrine of the Lord's return, led these Christian believers in Thessalonica into an unchristian way of life. They stopped working. And just no, um, make it clear that Paul recognised that some people could not work, perhaps because of physical disability or family responsibilities. And this is why he phrased that statement as he did. Those, the the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. It was not a question of ability, but a question of willingness. And when a believer cannot work, when a person is in need, you know, it is the privilege, it is the duty of other Christian believers, the church, to help them. Now, Paul is quite blunt and straightforward here. I don't think you can miss his point. People should work for a living and wherever possible. People should not live off the charity and generosity of others when they are quite capable of working themselves. Now, Paul expected the whole church to work together to solve this problem, to address this problem of people who would not work. They needed to act towards each other in love and help each other to obey God's commands. So let's just get things back on the straight and narrow, so to speak. So Paul provided them with four motives to encourage the careless believers to repent and start paying their own way. Paul firstly commands the believers to stay away from those who are idle and disruptive and who do not live according to the teaching they receive from Paul and his companions. Now, the word command that's used there is a very strong word it's a kind of like a, comes out of a military background by using it paul ex- exercises his apostolic authority his authority as an apostle and he indicates that he takes this issue very seriously because he's issuing this command he's very serious about it and the reason is paul had a great love for the churches that he had planted and it grieved him deeply to see believers' faith threatened by false teaching or persecution or disputes over wrong doctrine. So when he perceived a church's unity and mission was threatened, he swung into action. He was like a mother hen protecting her chicks or or more like a lioness protecting her cubs. Now, you know, those of us in church leadership we are very protective of our churches. And we often take criticism of our church very personally, even when it's not directed at us personally and specifically. And we are deeply grieved when there are arguments or conflicts in our midst. Yes, it is Christ's church. This is Christ's church. It's not Stuart's church not the warden's church or the parish council church. This is Jesus' church. And we must defer to him. But those in church leadership are entrusted with the responsibility of caring for God's precious children. And we will be held accountable before God for how we conduct ourselves in that role. Stuart and I... And others in leadership positions in this church care very much for the people in our care. That's you guys, by the way, in case you missed the point. And you know, we will do everything to show our support and love for those who are experiencing difficulties in their lives, whatever the situation may be. We are passionate to see this community of believers grow and thrive as fully committed disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say, we can promise you that we will not back away from confronting the spiritual forces that seek to undermine and threaten God's work amongst us. We have important work to do. We want to see new life come to every home in this community and the communities around us. This is serious work. This is God's call upon us. This is our vision for this church. We want this church to thrive and grow. It's important work for us. And it's a privilege. And we take it seriously. Moving on, Paul secondly secondly reminds the Thessalonians, of the time when he was with them. He encourages them to follow his example. When Paul and his companions were in Thessalonica, they were not idle and simply accepted the hospitality and generosity of the people in the church. This is probably a right that itinerant preachers and teachers would exercise when they visited places. But instead, Paul and his companions worked with their hands to support themselves while they're Th- in Thessalonica. And so there would not be a burden to those who are providing food and lodgings for them. And this was an example Paul set for them. Then in verse 12, Paul again uses that strong word command. But this time it was directed at the idle busybodies who were causing the trouble. He commands them to settle down and earn the food they eat. In other words, get a job, guys, and pay for what you eat. Pay your way. You're capable of doing that, and you should continue doing it. But it's interesting that Paul also reminds the other believers to, to continue doing good, to never tire of doing good. You see, Paul wants the church to handle this difficult situation with love and care and respect. Which brings us to the fourth motivation for getting back to work. It was the shame of being ostracised from the fellowship of believers. For those who did not heed the warnings, not to be idle, and to mind their own business, Paul recommended that they be ostracised from the church community. And Paul hoped that the shame of exclusion from Christian fellowship would be enough to change. Would be enough for them to change their ways. However, Paul, knowing the tendency of human nature to go to extremes, cautioned the other church members not to treat the offenders as enemies. "They are still your brothers in Christ," says Paul. So it requires much patience, love and grace to help someone who wanders from the truth and is displaying God's clear, it is disobeying God's clear demand commands well then paul then closes his letter he moves from this dealing with this issue that threatened the fellowship of believers in thessalonica to close with a blessing he says now may the lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way the lord be with all of you And then in verse 18 he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is Paul's final word of encouragement to the readers. Remember this is a a theme through the Thessalonian letters? Paul encourages the believers. But let's just zero in on the word peace. In English the word peace brings to mind a passive picture. One showing an absence of war or conflict or civil disturbance. Or of a personality free from internal or external strife. One, being, one is at peace with the world, with life. And words like contentment or anything working towards safety, welfare and happiness, all that's included in this concept of peace. But the biblical concept of peace is much larger than that. In that it is meant to convey a sense of completeness Soundness, wholeness. It's used to describe friendship between companions as well as a friendship with God. In the New Testament, the word has reference to the great mission or purpose of Jesus coming into the world to bring peace with God. Peace is the essence of the gospel because it embraces a reconciliation with God and the peace that comes from close, intimate fellowship with God it comes from the sense of knowing that our guilt has been removed that our sins have been forgiven that we can come into God's presence without fear neither we're welcomed that's peace that's God's peace and this peace, this reconciliation to God our creator means that we can become all that we were meant to be, complete, sound, whole. You know, God is the Father. God is referred to in the Bible as the Father of peace. And Jesus' sacrifice enables this peace. And the Holy Spirit's work in us brings this peace to fruition. Paul closes his letter with the words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, grace and peace are very closely linked. They are the preeminent gifts of Jesus to his church. Each involves the other, since there can be no grace without peace. And grace, the unmerited favor of God, which enables salvation to be offered freely to all people, that epitomises Paul's gospel. And this may be why at this point Paul, having so far dictated his letter, takes the pen from from his scribe and writes his final grace wish with his own hand. This is important stuff. In closing, may we note that the Bible contains many words of instruction that help us to lead our lives in such a way as to please God, to honour God. And sometimes the commands and demands that we come across are difficult. They're hard. They challenge us. But like any loving parent, God has to discipline his children for their own benefit. And sometimes God pulls us up short. Sometimes he changes the direction we think our lives should be following. He corrects us. But if we're able to accept God's directions, we'll find ourselves enjoying the benefits of a loving Heavenly Father who not only wants us to have the best that this life can offer, but who has promised us all the benefits of an eternal life in heaven with him forever. So allow the word of God to run freely, to do its work in the hearts of those who receive it gladly. Obey the commands of God and follow the example of Jesus. And then enjoy the peace that passes all understanding, that comes from fellowship, intimate fellowship with God, our loving Heavenly Father. May we pray. Our Lord, as we approach the Christmas season, to celebrate you coming into this world may we reflect on what you achieved for us on our behalf our Lord you set us a wonderful example on how to live our lives may we take this on board apply it to ourselves and greatly receive the gift of salvation that you died on the cross to obtain for us freely. Lord we pray that as the gospel is proclaimed this Christmas season that it will touch hearts and minds afresh for those that do not know you may they come to know you as Lord and Saviour. Father we pray that the word of life, new life may come to all the homes we visit that we drive past, that we walk past We pray that your word may run freely and have an impact in this community in Jesus' name. Amen.